while police photographing our license plate. What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Good afternoon. This is Marcello Rolando, your host of the Reasonable Voices talk radio show, My guest today is a theater man par excellence. His name is Jim Warren. Jim Warren is the artistic director and co-founder of the American Shakespeare Center. By the end of the 20th century, the American Shakespeare Center had performed in 47 of the states in the United States of America, including the District of Columbia, which of course is not a state, and one U.S. territory. In 2001, ASC opened the Blackfriars Playhouse, the world's only recreation of Shakespeare's indoor theater. So, Jim, Jim Warren, welcome to the show, and thank you for being on. It's great to talk to you again. It's been a year, (laughs) quite literally. Thanks for having me back. Oh, it's my pleasure, especially after uh, dropping in on a dress rehearsal of Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson. I got to tell you, I didn't know the show before, and the title was enough for me. I've written many opinions about uh, Andrew Jackson, and I thought anything calling him bloody bloody, as we know the British, as well as the double entendre there, at least in my thinking, uh, I thought, I've got to see this. It was a great dress rehearsal. But let's um, let's mention a few other things. Jim directed the ASC's first show. I love this because it was Richard III, and my last Shakespearean performance was in Richard III in the Washington Shakespeare. Uh, Jim played the Buckingham as well as directing uh, Richard III. Jim has also directed 127 of the American Shakespeare Center's productions, including 32 of Shakespeare's 38 plays. Now that's impressive any way you slice it, Jim. So... A good afternoon again. Welcome to the show. And gee, what's happening at the American Center after 25 years? Uh, we're still going strong. And actually, uh, this year we uh, we turned 28. Ah. Uh, and, and the Blackfriars Playhouse is a special uh, uh, year for us there because the Blackfriars turns 15. Oh. So we're, uh, we're humming along and, and things are crazy busy and crazy wonderful. We're always producing shows so that uh, anytime people can make it to the Shenandoah Valley, we've got a show running and nine times out of ten it's not just a show, but it is a series of shows because we believe in uh, repertory theater yes. uh, and, and real repertory theater so that all the actors are in between three and five plays per season and it's not just you know some stars and some supporting players that end up being in in all the shows, but it's a real ensemble that um, that plays all the parts in all the shows in rap. And so I think that's an exciting thing for an audience. Uh, and it, the American Theater, I, I hope, uh, we're part of a revival of repertory theater because it's just so much fun for an audience. And I have to say, very Shakespearean. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, I, I think the thing that, that makes us pretty unique out there in the theater world today is that almost everything we do has some kind of core 
or seed in what we think Shakespeare's company might have done. Uh-huh. Uh, we're, we're trying to recreate Shakespeare's staging conditions, so that's the big thing in performance. Uh, and the biggest thing about that is that we leave the lights on the audience, uh, and we include the audience in the world of the play. And so, so we talk about going back to the future a lot. Yes. Using 400-year-old staging conditions feels so contemporary, in-your-face, guerrilla theater, mm. and, and connects with an audience, we think, in a way that is the wave of the future uh, for how theater can survive and thrive in this era of movies. It feels like, like a lot of theater tries to be movies, and with all the special effects and all the cool things we've invented yes. since Shakespeare was around. But I think that what makes theater special is that live connection. Yes. And when you leave the light for the audience and you include them in the world of the play, and the audience not only can see the actors and the actors seeing the audience, but the audience is surrounding the stage in, in our Black Friars. Yes. Because Shakespeare had a, had a front stage too. So the audience is seeing each other, and it's a real communal event. And all live theater is communal in some ways, but when the lights are off on you and you're all sitting on one side, kind of like you're looking up at a movie screen, mm. it's a different kind of, of animal altogether. And so, and so I think that, 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 that um, sometimes when you describe what we do and we create Shakespeare stage conditions, it can sound like uh, we're talking about museum theater or something gutsy uh-huh. and, and, and not relevant. And it's actually, I think, the opposite of that. I think they're using these... these the staging conditions make the place come alive in ways for for people who, you know, students, Shakespeare scholars, you think you might not like Shakespeare, come and check this out, and we think we'll change your mind. You know, I agree with that, Jim. Uh, having seen, uh, as, especially most recently, the dress rehearsal for Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, as a director, I like to watch the audience anyway. But over at your place, you keep the lights on, which makes it a lot easier. I enjoy watching the audience's reaction as well as watching the actors on stage. And so t- tell us, you you certainly have broken the fourth wall, but more than that, you also have, as I recall, uh, benches or stools or chairs on the stage itself, which was very Shakespearean, yes? Yes, yes. We think that, that, uh, that at Shakespeare's indoor theater, it's Blackfriars, uh-huh. uh, we think that they had stools on stage and that that's where the lords and ladies that wanted to be seen yes. could, uh, could pay more money so that, that you could see their, their sword or their cap, <laughs> if they want to stick their cap out there for you. Their plume. Um, and, and that they were there on display. And so that's another part, I think, that, that's exciting to watch. Just as you said, watching audience watch the play yes. gives you another layer of entertainment that's just so much fun. Yeah, I think so, yes. So I keep mentioning bloody, bloody Andrew Jackson. You're not biting, and I love it. Tell us what you can and what you will. Um, Well, because we perform 12 months a year, and and we're usually doing uh, 15 or 16 plays over the course of that year in different seasons of repertory, Shakespeare only wrote or co-wrote, we think, 38 surviving plays. Uh And so you run out of those plays pretty quickly, so you've got to find other plays to do in Shakespeare. And we've made made most of of our living off of Shakespeare's plays and plays contemporaries of this, uh-huh. um, Ben Johnson and Christopher Marlowe yes. and, and lots of other folks. But we've also been very selective about finding restoration plays mm-hmm. or modern plays that we think will work in the staging conditions. And that led us to our first musical several years ago. We did Bob Carlton's Return to the Forbidden Planet, uh-huh. which is... This bizarrely wonderful play that's based on uh, the 1968 B science fiction movie, uh, The Forbidden Planet, which is kind of telling uh, a similar story to The Tempest mm. in Outer Space. Mm-hmm. And Bob Carlton in London in, in the 80s took that idea and uh, kind of recrafted the script so that it's a bunch of Shakespeare lines from all over the canon. Uh, mm. That tells this science fiction story uh, that includes a roller, uh, a roller skating robot, and, and a, a doctor that's like Prospero, and interspersed in this this base story are rock and roll songs yes. from the fifties and sixties. <laughs> and it was a hoot, and we took it on tour, 
Uh, and as soon as we did it on tour and we built the Black Friars, people said, when are you going to do it again? So a few years ago, we did do it again. And mm-hmm. so I was looking for our second musical. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson just fit the bill mm-hmm. of a show where <laughs> the actors could be the characters and the band yes. at the same time. And it would be great to open up that fourth wall and, and include the audience in the world of the play. Yes. It's exciting uh, rock and roll music. And, and I specifically picked it here in 2016 uh, for the election year. Yes. <laughs> you know, watching this play through the prism of what's going on today in today's political environment, you would not know that the play was actually written almost 10 years ago. Yes. Uh, mm. Because it feels like Donald Trump is there. It feels like like uh, uh, Bernie and Hillary and Ted Cruz and all of the people that have been out there uh, campaigning. They feel somehow represented in this play, even though yeah. the, the the playwrights were actually looking more at, at Clinton and both Bushes uh, and Sarah Palin and whatnot. So you kind of get you, you get the history of Andrew Jackson and that story told in a way that shows. All of the political link yes. between today and back then. Oh, yes. And it's amazing how well the connection works. You know, the more things uh, change, the more they stay the same. I wasn't going. I wasn't going to make the uh, 2016 campaign connection, but I thought I, I was hoping you would because it clearly is there. And and the and the sadder truth is. It, it's not that it had to be imposed on the play. The play is saying not not only when, as you say, it was written during the uh, the Clinton era, and, and certainly fits like a glove. And right now with Trump and and those running, but um, George W. Bush and other presidents have modeled themselves after Andrew Jackson, thinking, "Oh, what a great uh, you know role model. We should we should follow this." And I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> What do you, what well, do you think? Go ahead. I, I think what's remarkable about Jackson's story is that, uh, you know, without labeling it good or bad. Exactly. He was, he was part of this, this movement. He, he somewhat led the movement of, here's the frontiersman who feels like his government is run by a bunch of elite folks that are leaving out all of the people that are, you know, not on the East Coast, that are, yes. that are in the West. And so he became a politician in part to stand up for the rights of the Westerners. And so that kind of populism, that kind of, we need to break this system to create something that is more democratic, that is more uh, government by the people, is a really interesting story for that moment in history and how that seems to parallel a lot of what's being talked about today. And and certainly, you know, Trump's campaign of wanting to be an outsider and wanting to crush the what he calls the elite comes right out of the populism that, that Jackson was promoting. Yes. So, and then he's on top of that, all the things that Jackson, quote, accomplished yes. with expanding the United States. He doubled the size of the United States. Yes. Which some people can look at and say, oh my gosh, what a, what a national hero. Yes. But he did that, he did that by, by slaughtering Native Americans mm-hmm. and slaughtering the Spanish in, uh, in Florida. Yes. And he did it in a way that you could look at it and say he was an American Hitler. That's a line from the play that I think you can have that perspective and, and I think be just as right. Exactly. Uh, as those people who celebrated him and wanted to put him on the twenty dollar bill, that now we're going to take him off. Yeah, now we're going to take him off. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I I'm certainly not an Andrew Jackson fan, but that doesn't mean I don't appreciate his popularism or the fact that he went after the U.S. banks in a way that didn't happen again until Teddy Roosevelt, and now we're still fighting that same battle. I often, when I write, people say, oh, is there any hope? And I said, well, you know, hope is a two-sided coin. Uh, and, and the reality is we've all been here before. 
we keep repeating the same battles and the same mistakes and have some victories but um it's it's not, you know since cain and abel at least uh, people have been uh jealous envious uh, violent whatever disagreement arguments uh, and and of course seeing the same u.s constitution the same words and yet coming away with an entirely different interpretation and nobody is completely right I don't like a lot. I'm on record of not liking a lot about Andrew Jackson, but um, there's no question that in in his time and what he was fighting was a, were issues that we're still fighting today. He he's talking about too big to jail and too big to fail. Absolutely. You know. Too big to fail. <laughs> well, and, and I think what and, and some people when I say this first sentence they're gonna laugh. But, yes. But follow me after that first sentence. I think there is something incredibly Shakespearean about this play yes. that takes takes a historical figure and tells that story in such a way that, like Macbeth, like King Lear, like Othello, this main character yes. is charismatic and likable and does some despicable things. things. Yes, and and I think that, that throughout the course of the story. It's hard to write Jackson off as just a this or yep. just a that. Absolutely. There's something sympathetic about him, even though he is committing genocide. Yes. And um, and I think that's what's fascinating. I, I, you know, on, on, on the one hand, it's a fun rock and roll modern musical yes. uh, that makes light of the political situation. Yes. But it gets so deeper than that because Jackson was a truly complex guy. Yes. And somehow this musical gets at that complexity and gives you highs and lows, the silliness and the seriousness in a way that it's also just dang fun entertainment. And so I, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that we're getting to do this, uh, this play in this election year in repertory with King Lear and The Ride of the Queen Margaret, uh, Henry VI Part Two. Yes. Both of those stories the journey of power-hungry politicos, yes. uh, and it's a great repertory to have all of those things happening in conjunction with each other. I think it is. It's a marvelous marriage you put together there, Jim. Uh, it really is. And I, as I said, I, I've, I saw the dress rehearsal of Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson. I recommend it highly. They do it with the lights on. Keep that in mind. And when you juxtapose history and theater and music and the different ages, you know, the, the uh, anachronism of it. It just is in your face, and you will laugh, and you will you will ponder who you are, I'll tell you. Okay. I think that's a great way to put it. <laughs> well, tell us, we, we should go to break, but uh, just give us a smidgen. We at least got around to mentioning the uh, King Lear and the Rise of Queen Margaret. The Rise of Queen Margaret is another I'm not as familiar with. King Lear, of course, I do know. But but so tell us, give us a little tease on the rise of Queen Margaret, and we'll we'll take a break and then come back to it. We are titling the play "The Rise of Queen Margaret" with the subtitle of Henry the Sixth, Part Two. Okay. Uh, we have a bunch of different titles of that play from the period, ah. and even though it got printed for the first time in the 1623. Uh, first folio collected works of Shakespeare, uh, the first time it's ever been in print, the Henry VI Part One, Part, part Two, and Part Three. And so there's good evidence that they, they never called it that at the beginning. Uh-huh. The printed quartos and stuff have these long titles that explain the, the, you know, the, the plot of the play. So we're not quite sure how they advertised it, but we're trying to, to help our audience know that, hey, this is about Queen Margaret taking over uh, the power in England yes. during the reign of, of King Henry VI. Yes. And so we're, we're, we did part one last year, which was Joan of Arc. We're doing part two this year, and next year is part three. We start to get into the character of Richard III. He appears for the first time in, in The Rise of Queen Margaret, but I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. It's, <laughs> it's, it's part of the Wars of the Roses, yes. where af- after Henry V conquered France, and so England and France were one nation. Yes. He died really early, and, and so he left his, his son, Henry VI, as a child on the throne, mm-hmm. and so there were other people helping to govern, and they did this arranged marriage with, with Marguerite of Anjou from yes. France. Yes. We bolstered that relationship, but that's the Wars of the Roses is this cataclysmic time in English history of English civil war 
where there were people who said, Henry, you don't belong on the throne. Henry's more the Lancaster family, and you're the Red Rose. But we, the York family, the White Rose, we think we have a stronger claim to the throne, so we're going to fight you for it. And and so Queen Margaret becomes the the political and uh, and military force behind defending the crown for the family of Lancaster uh, while the Yorks are trying to take over. Oh. And so she actually appears in more plays than any other Shakespeare character because she was in Henry VI Part One, Part Two, Part Three, and in Richard the Third. What ends up happening, uh, to give away the ending, is the end arrives of Queen Margaret, we get to the end of it, and it's a little bit like The Empire Strikes Back. It's a middle episode uh. where things are at the end, and, and the Yorks have won a big victory over the Lancasters, and we meet York's son. Uh, he's got a couple of sons, but we re- meet his crookback, hunchback, oh, yes. deformed yes. kid yes. named Richard. Yes. Uh, yes. And... And we're waiting to see how that's going to turn out by the time uh, the rise of Queen Margaret ends. But oh. it's, it's a fascinating story built around uh, this powerful woman. And, uh, and Shakespeare did that a, a bunch of times in this place where he's making the smartest and the most uh, powerful people the women in the story. And often the men get in trouble because they don't listen to the women. <laughs> uh, but Margaret is such, is such a, a, a tiger and, and such a... a, a an amazing uh, character that's being played by Allison Glenzer, who's been with the Blackfriars for many, many, many years. And uh, so we're looking forward to uh, her taking the stage uh, and trying to rule the world. Okay. We're going to take a break now. That was fabulous. That was more than a tease, but well worth it. We'll be right back with the artistic director of the American Shakespeare Center, Jim Warren. Uh, and I'm, I want to say, yes, and the Black Friars. That's what I wanted to say. Stay with us. We'll be right back. There's more to talk about, including the Wars of the Roses ride. Another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. In South African Patois, Sotsi means thug, and the Patois is thick in this Foreign Language Academy Award winner. English is what's spoken, but the subtitles are a blessing. Sotsi is dead inside, a broken human. He is a ruthless emerging mobster who begins each day with a plan for heartless mayhem. He and his gang extort, steal, and murder up close and personal without remorse. We understand how his humanity was lost. We learn of Sotzi's past as he grew to manhood inside a concrete sewer pipe for a home. One night, in need of transportation, he shoots a woman and steals her car. Just another day for him, another life shattered. But wait, a baby strapped in the back seat? A flicker of childhood memory. Something inside has changed. Suddenly, he cannot bring himself to abandon the child, and Sotzi the film lights up in brilliance. This profoundly human story is rich in the details of a society where the comfortably wealthy exist beside the desperate poor. Beauty emerges from ugliness, deceptively reaching for a more hopeful sensibility. With beautiful photography and without a trace of pretentiousness, Sotzi offers us no less than a revelation into the mystery of the human spirit. Sotzi, not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices Talk Radio Show. My guest today, the incredibly talented, informative, historically educated as well, fabulous artistic director and co-founder of the American Shakespeare Center, which now operates um, out of the Blackfriars Theater in Stanton, Virginia. I don't think we mentioned that before, but we do want to mention that. And Jim... We had sort of given a heavy-duty teaser ad to The Rise of Queen Margaret, Henry VI, Part Two, and I think you and I were both agreeing if we listen to women more often, we wouldn't have so much trouble, I'll tell you. I, there's a lot of uh, history and politics to support that as well. But let's move on for now to The, the War of the Roses Ride. What is that? Yeah, well, we... Uh... We set out starting last year to do the four plays in uh, Shakespeare's first history cycle, his first tetralogy that he wrote. And those 
take the, the, the historical parts of English history from Henry VI taking over uh, the throne after his dad, Henry V, died. Yes. And the plays are Henry VI Part One, Henry VI Part Two, Henry VI Part Three, and Richard III. Yes. And they, they chronicle the wars of the Roses that pit, you know, as I said before, the, the House of Lancaster versus the House of York. Yes. Uh, there's a, it's actually a really interesting um, and complicated thing. I think the evidence points to Henry VI Part Two and Part Three being two of the first plays Shakespeare wrote. Oh. And and they were printed in kind of paperback form during Shakespeare's lifetime hmm. uh, with really long titles. The first part of the title was, now remember, I'm talking about Henry VI, Part Two. Yes. That's, that's how it is in the, in the first complete works of Shakespeare. But when it was printed at the time, it was called The First Part of the Contention between the houses of York and Lancaster. Yes. Uh, so, so I think that he wrote what we call part two and part three first, and then he wrote part one as a prequel uh, later. And so, and, and it tells the story in part one of Joan of Arc and the plucking of the roses where the, the family decided that, you know, they were the Hatfields and McCoys and yes. they were the, the Republicans versus the Democrats. They were, you know, deciding that they were going to uh, uh, be uh, opposed to one another, but they had to deal with France first. So part one of Henry VI and part one of, of the Wars of the Roses ride is kind of the story of Joan of Arc and, and the English hero uh, Talbot defeating Joan of Arc. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, you know, England does really well in that first part, so well that they start to fight each other in part two. Um, and so that's where, you know, the, the part two that, that we're calling the rise of Queen Margaret um, is really the, the political civil wars uh, that happen between these two families that are, that are, um, uh, that pick roses to be their, their emblem. And so, so we're kind of smack dab in the middle. Uh, here in, in the rise of Queen Margaret, uh, I said earlier, at the very end, we just barely meet the guy that's going to be Richard III. Yes. Um, and he takes a slightly bigger part next year when we do Henry VI Part Three, and then uh, he becomes, you know, the, the Richard III, yes. The driving force, the, the, the villain we love to hate, uh, yes. Richard III. And, and, you know, even his reputation has gotten somewhat of a uh, buffing up uh, in finding his grave under a parking lot. Uh, well, in, hey, what's... What's really interesting about that, yeah, we, we think that, that, that we, I say we. <laughs> well, you and I, anyway. <laughs> the, the world has, has discovered this, this skeleton that we think is, is Richard III. And one of the things that had been out there was that the way Shakespeare portrays Richard as this evil hunchback, mm-hmm. people thought that was Tudor propaganda. That he was writing, you know, in the age of, of Elizabeth I uh, by, by that that point in his career, and that he couldn't say anything nice about him because he was the bad guy. Yes, and yeah. the guy that beats him, Richmond, is actually the the ancestor of Elizabeth the First. Yes. So there was this thought that uh, the Tudors wanted us to think of him as the, this deformed uh, villain, and the people on the other side of the fence were saying, "No, I, I remember meeting when we were on the road." because uh, we're still a touring company. It's yes. been so for 28 years. I remember meeting somebody uh, uh, up in Canton, New York, who was part of the Richard III Society. Mm. And so they're taking the historical Richard and saying, Shakespeare's Richard is nothing like him. Mm. The, the, the historical Richard wasn't actually deformed. He wasn't a hunchback. He just had his muscles built up on one of his sides, his right-hand side, from where he carried a heavy sword while he was riding a horse. And so there was all this talk about, you know, he really wasn't deformed, but this skeleton has severe scoliosis. Mm-hmm. And and looks like he would have been a hunchback. Yes. Um, and, you know, or, or whatever the, the more more accurate terms are. Uh, he gets called a lot of things in Shakespeare's plays. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so, yeah, it's, uh, Richard III has absolutely been, been in the news more lately uh, because of that skeleton find. Yes. One thing that hit me, I mean, you, you're giving us so much wonderful information, but it occurred to me that you, when you talk about the titles of the 
of the trilogy there, if I may call them that, um, mm-hmm. that uh, these long titles that Shakespeare you sort of told you what the, it was about. And as a writer, I'm told by my manager, your titles, you know, you do these clever, witty, double entendre, whatever titles, but people don't know what the article is about. You've got to tell them in the first, in the title what it's about. And I, right. I, when I hear you say that about Shakespeare, I go, well, then, you know, if, if Shakespeare had to do it, I guess I can't complain. So, but it's just, it's just so many things, again, that tie us together with the Shakespearean era and people who don't quite, you know, some know, of course, about England fighting with Ireland, of course, and, and Scotland having problems with England, Braveheart or whatever it was. But um, we forget that there was a great uh, uh, competition uh, before Spain and, and England, even between France and England. And there just have been wars about territory. And all we have to do, really, the resolution of which is to jump ahead a bit to Queen Victoria, where her children and grandchildren were on all of the thrones of Europe while she was alive, ruling in England. So, I mean, I don't know whether that's a good thing or not, but but certainly one one said, let it be done, it was done. Let's put it that way. I I don't know. I don't know where I was going with that, but you, go, jump in. Mm-hmm. We call these plays history because, again, in that first complete work that was printed for us uh, in, seven years after he died, yes. in 1623, called the First Folio, they label, you know, it, it's, the table's content breaks the, the plays up into different chunks. Yes. And that's one of the first times that we get these these plays labeled as either comedy, tragedy, or, or histories. History. Yes. And, uh, and I think that the way we're, we're exposed to Shakespeare today in America, it usually makes us think that unless you're a history buff, you're not going to like Shakespeare's history plays because they're dull and boring and and they have characters in them that we don't know because in America we don't grow up knowing uh, English history. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so that's one of the reasons that we're calling Play the Rise of Queen Margaret because I think every time uh, uh, a lot of audience members see King and so-and-so, and then there's a Roman numeral out <laughs> They just check out and say, this is not going to be for me. <laughs> when in fact, these are just exciting stories yes. that, that are filled with, with, with characters that come alive on the stage, and you don't need to be an English uh, history buff yeah. to be able to follow it. Now granted, there are a lot of people, and there is a lot to follow. Uh, we do have stuff written in the program to help people, so if you feel like you're listening to this and you're like, I don't know that I want to go. We, we do give you a cheat sheet. Yeah. Um, but, but I think it's more of a crush and that you find that you don't really need it because you can follow great actors on stage doing these great lines yes. and telling these wonderful stories. And that is the bottom line for for the experience between audience and, and performer, especially when they're so united, so joined uh, as, a, as a total ensemble in the way you produce at the uh, Blackfriars Playhouse in Stanton, Virginia. Tell us more about, I know we've talked a lot about it, but tell us more about the your unique approach at the uh, Blackfriars. Well, I think that uh, uh, I, I used some, some wording earlier on that, that I'll repeat here. We didn't start the company just because we thought Shakespeare was great, mm-hmm. uh, even though we do think Shakespeare yes, great. Yes. Um, but it was really specifically with the idea that if that we thought that he was not just a poet and not just even a playwright, but mm-hmm. that he knew stagecraft. Yes. And he was writing for a particular kind of theatrical environment. Uh, you know, he didn't have light. He didn't have revolve. He didn't have big sets. Mm. And so we thought that if we could recreate the kinds of staging conditions that this the genius boy was writing for, mm-hmm. then we might be able to uncover some of the magic he wrote into the plays that sometimes get lost or, or overlooked yes. when you play with all the cool tricks we've invented in 400 years. Mm. So mm. it was really a way to show how great Shakespeare is uh, by uncovering things you might lose if you play by the, the staging conditions that he was writing for. So, so that makes us you know, a unique animal because most people are not, most theater companies are not trying to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so everything we do has some basis in what we think Shakespeare might have done. Mm-hmm. But I think the three big things that, that we started with 28 years ago uh, and that we continue with today, there is this phrase that, that encapsulates uh, leaving a life on that we put on bumper stickers and T-shirts and sell all kinds of stuff with it on. It's we do it with the lights on. Yes, yes. Uh, we leave the lights on. And, and again, as simple as that sounds, is a completely different environment uh, when you leave the lights on the audience than if you uh, put them in the dark. And so that's one of Shakespeare's big safety conditions that we follow. The second one is that we think Shakespeare wrote for a relatively small troop of actors. Mm-hmm. We don't know the exact number, but you know that some of these plays have 40 and 50 characters in yes. them. Mm-hmm. And we think that Shakespeare probably only had around 15 or so actors. Wow. It might have been a bit more when they were at home, might have been a bit fewer when they went out on the road, but somewhere around that. So doubling and tripling or sometimes quadrupling of roles uh, by individual actors was a normal part of the game, yes. which feels a little different than, than a modern production that might have you know a cast of three dozen where your role is beer carrier number four. Yes. Um, <laughs> And then lastly, I think that, that what we consider to be uh, historically accurate costuming was not a part of the Renaissance in the same way we might think of it today. Mm-hmm. So a play like Julius Caesar that is set in ancient Rome has lines in it about Dublin uh-huh. and other contemporary Elizabethan things. So there was something anachronistic going on in those original productions. Hmm. So even though it was a it, it, it was a piece of history from long ago, it also felt like it was modern. Uh, uh-huh. And we think that they wore modern clothes for them, mostly for their plays. And so we try to get at that spirit by having costumes that run the gamut. We will do Elizabethan dress shows. We will uh-huh. do modern dress shows. And we'll do mashups and things in between. But what we work really hard not to do, that's all the rage in the Shakespeare world today, is put a concept on top of the play that adds another layer of story to what Genius Boy gave us. So, for example, we uh, just finished rehearsing uh, Twelfth Night. That's the other play in, in uh, our summer fall graphic. Blood Bloody Andrew Jackson, Twelfth Night, King Lear, and then later on, The Rise of Queen Margaret. Mm-hmm. And Twelfth Night has an, has an Edwardian feel to the costume. Yes. So there's a little bit of, you know, upstairs, downstairs, uh, a little bit of uh, Downton Abbey mm. uh, kind of flavor to it. But it's not set in the Edwardian age. It's just giving you a different flavor of costume that hopefully does not round out Shakespeare's story. Yes. We don't do Hamlet on the moon. We don't do... You know, uh, setting uh, setting uh, end of the sixth part two in 1972 Nicaragua because of the revolution going on there. That that really tells the story of what Shakespeare was trying to do. Mm. Might do a great production that is like that, but that's not that's not what we're trying to do. Gotcha. So I think that those things combined make our Shakespeare more of an actor-driven medium that is more accessible for the audience because they're a part of the world of that play. And that's as opposed to a lot of Shakespeare that's out there today that I think tends to be more director and designer concept-driven. Uh, well, answer this for me. I, I, I've been... I haven't brought up this point with anyone in years, literally. But when I was in New York and I was directing, one of the uh, theater companies I worked for was... Uh, uh, Shakespearean company, I can't remember its exact name, but it was run by, and the shows were produced by, an, an actual English person, a woman who knew, who was a Shakespearean uh, a historian, a, an authority, and when she hired me to direct, I, I wondered what that was going to be like, because I'm very steeped in the realism of theater, and so she came to see a rehearsal early on, and as I not wasn't surprised she would, and she said, ugh, finally an American that understands Shakespeare is more than just words. What do you think about that, based on what you've been saying? And of course, bloody, bloody Andrew Jackson is not Shakespeare, but the, your production, talk to me. Well, I, I think that, that and, and I don't know exactly what, what that director meant by that, but uh-huh. I do think that the word and the language are at the heart yes. of, of what Shakespeare, does, Shakespeare is trying to do. Yes. Um, I, I, I think, I'm not looking 
looking for people to just stand and recite the play. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you can go do that. That's, that's a different kind of art form. But I do think he was amazing at how he stacked the language full of thoughts and emotion that if you understand the words and if you are saying them clearly and if you are trained at delivering them in a way that milks them for all their words, yes. you get you get the emotion. He writes the emotion into it. He writes inside the language what the audience should be imagining for the set. Exactly. That's why a lot of modern productions fail because they want to put a big set up there but he changes location in a, in a heartbeat. In mm-hmm. one line, he'll say, welcome to Rome. <laughs> and so we, we, trans, we, we go from Egypt to Rome by just that line and not a big set change. Yeah. And I think that the language is key to ignite the imagination of the audience uh, to picture where we are, because we're really just on a bare stage yes. uh, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon in London uh, <laughs> for these original productions. So I think the language is, is key and, and is important. And we have all kinds of tricks that, yes. that, that we do in training our actors so that they understand every word to help the audience understand exactly. uh, everything. But I also think that there's this, this classic difference uh, that people talk about between American actors and British actors. It's actually something of the opposite of what it sounds like this woman said because a lot of times we refer to American method acting as working from the inside out yeah. and start with uh-huh. your emotion to try to motivate what the lines are. Yes. Then the, the, the British way of acting is often from the outside in mm-hmm. where people are looking at their uh, their posture or the way they walk or, or what they're wearing and they build the character from the outside uh, in going inward to the emotion. And I actually think that what Shakespeare did was an amazing mixture of, of both. Of he, yes, he he's the combination. As you say, the words, it, it's the beautiful words, beautiful poetry, beautiful prose, but they are not meant to be a, a recitation. They are, they they stimulate imagination and creativity and they, the movie in your mind, if you will. And I, Absolutely. I, I think that's, that's his genius. It's just, ah, well... This has been great. I, I, we do need to go, but tell us how we get tickets and, uh, uh, you know, when opening dates, whatever you want to tell us, a website, tell us. Uh, let's talk website. Uh, uh, you can go to AmericanShakespeareCenter.com, and uh, we are in the final uh, two weeks of our spring season right now. So if, if you run out there in a hurry uh, uh, after you hear this, you can still see uh, our spring season of Four Plagues. Uh, which is a different truth than is doing Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson and Twelfth Night and King Lear and The Rise of Queen Margaret. What we've got running for the next two weeks is Julius Caesar, The Life of King Henry V, The Importance of Being Earnest by Oscar Wilde, <laughs> and Arms and the Man by uh, George Bernard Shaw. Uh-huh. Uh, so, so those are just ending their run, and we start with our new summer-fall season uh, in a couple of weeks, beginning on... Tuesday, the 14th of June, is when Twelfth Night starts, and that's when Twelfth Night and Bloody Bloody will be up and running as we continue to work on Lear and Margaret and add those to the rep. Love repertoire. But, but, but yeah, and, and you can call 1-800-MUCH-ADO, that's the <laughs> telephone for number for the uh, Blackfriars Thank you so much, Jim Warren, co-founder and artistic director of the American Shakespeare Center, now playing, performing in the Blackfriars Playhouse in Stanton, Virginia. Jim, thank you so very much for being on the show. Uh, it's Absolutely. always a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Take care and all the best. Bye now. Thanks. Bye-bye. Stay with us as we'll be right back with a final comment from The Reasonable Voice. Another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. Make no mistake about it. We Need to Talk About Kevin is a horror film. Though written with consummate ability and constructed to challenge us while evil edges ever closer, horror here strikes skillfully, its power amplified by the harrowing reality of today's headlines. Eva was not ready to be a mom. 
a world-traveling bohemian who immersed her senses in all the world had to offer. She lived, she loved, she reveled, and she was good at it. At a tomato festival in Milan, she rolled in the blood-red paste. But a child did come, and she did try. Hateful at birth and armed with an innate ability to leech his way under his mom's skin, Kevin refined this chosen skill to righteous cruelty, while seemingly normal to the rest of the world. In the meantime, Kevin fixated on his archery set and learned to steady his aim. We need to talk about Kevin, is told through the broken, guilty mind of a survivor. Its story unfolds in chaos, mangling history and the present, while merging with our own reality, reminding us of the powerful evil in our own world. And then it punches us right in the gut. We need to talk about Kevin. Not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Stay connected to the Indie Film Minute by liking us on Facebook and following us on Twitter at Indie Film Minute, where you'll discover a whole world of film recommendations, movie news, and more. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the reasonable voices heard around the world. Growing labor pains, religion, guns, victim mentality. The greatest challenge to violence and hypocrisy is an informed public posting proof of our domestic wars on social media, because conservative money banks on people more full news than investigative reporting influenced, and as unlikely to exercise to pump blood to the brain as they are to be politically analytical. Long before the labor pains of Scott Walker, climate refugees, and Kim Davis, there were card cheats, wife beaters, and gun violence. For those who thought differently, the stake, and now arson. For those who looked or spoke differently, tenement housing. And for those who forgot their place, the whipping post or hanging tree. In 2015, Black Lives Matter makes a right turn. Women calling out state legislatures for ratification of constitutional equality. Native Americans go to Washington to deflate the name of a football team. Gay couples getting in the face of religious hypocrisy masking a hate crime. But immigrants abandoned to suffocate in a truck. Racial voter suppression, gender inequality, sexual alienation, and preyed-upon migrant workers are not new to America. What is dangerously new, parts of the First Amendment being twisted and turned against the whole of its freedoms. If God's law, Kim Davis's supporters are following, doesn't resemble love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. If it doesn't, something was lost in translation, at least with the word neighbor. For the humanity in the mystery some call God, we need look no further than a loving American tourist named Pope Francis I. When we claim to love God and country but fail to love all Americans, aren't we aligning with the Hungarian government and a past of parsing human beings like cattle, herding women and children from trains, taking them to destinations not of their choosing, and marching them into camps? What is past is prologue when we continue to choose to be two warring halves, like labor who built that versus the European immigrants who thought of it and how to get someone else to build it for meager wages and dwindling benefits. The shift in the balance of power between the haves and the have-nots has increased collective growing pains of anger and fear. Understandably, most want the greener grass, but some need the green to manage control over the red, the black, the brown, the yellow, the LGBT, and even the spousal people. We can't wash our hands of our wars against those in whose land we immigrated measles, syphilis, alcoholism, and casinos, or the infiltration of white supremacists into our city's police forces. But we can end the wars of powerful greed against the laboring middle class, against women, and against the needy. 
Is Christianity still holy, merciful, giving, and forgiving? Or have we, for political convenience, transformed it into a weapon of mass class discrimination? If pro-life ends with birth, shouldn't it be called pro-labor pains? Regardless of our choice of inciting moment, 1776, Civil War, Marshall Plan, 1960s, the infamous Powell Memo, or trickle-down Reaganomics, the Bush-Cheney too-big-to-fail banker-induced Great Recession nearly did us in, and we must never again empower a mushroom-cloud gang. Poverty and alcoholism for Native Americans. Ignorance of the Founding Fathers' constitutional positions on religion. Violations of marriage equality deemed legal by the U.S. Supreme Court. Free will as if the freedom to impose one's POV on another. And denial that every deadly shooting involves a gun. Is it not wise to take fanatics seriously? We as a people cannot afford to ignore anger that comes from the fear of being replaced by people we've deemed second-class or low-class since before the birth of our nation. This kind of fear-fueled anger does not evaporate with any election. People targeted by such resentment have not chosen victim mentality. It is thrust upon them by the manipulated pawns of powerful economic megalomaniacs who, since invading the new world, have pillaged our vibrant and squandered our hued. All for personal profit. Join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Website. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world.